Saving money on your outdoor project? Now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at Menards. Mike Skill is a founding lead guitarist and major songwriter for the garage rock, new wave, and power pop band, The Romantics. The Romantics were formed in 1977 in Mike's hometown area of Detroit. The Romantics' songs have become classic rock staples. Inspired by the 1960s British invasion, Motown, R&B, and the legendary activist punk attack of Detroit-based MC5, the Romantics' first show opened for the new MC5 in 1977, and that led to an extensive worldwide touring schedule. The Romantics have appeared at some legendary venues in their heyday, like New York's CBGB and Max's Kansas City, Boston's Wrath Skeller, and Cleveland's Agora. The Romantics singles What I Like About You, Talking in Your Sleep, Little White Lies, Tell It to Carry, One in a Million, Test of Time, Mystified, and others have solidified their fan base around the dance and party-friendly event that the Romantics' live shows grew into. Mike is here on Backstory Song to share with us stories from those days and new work that he is releasing now. Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke, and I am so thrilled to have one of the founding members and lead songwriters of the group, The Romantics, Mike Sill, with me here. Mike, welcome to our show. Hello, Doug. How are you doing today? Now that we got that picture and sound quality right in the right spot. I'm thrilled to have you here, and I'm thrilled to have our technical difficulties worked out. Mike, one of the things I've been looking forward to in this interview is you have lived a life of history of music and rock and roll. In particular, you grew up in the Detroit music scene and were heavily influenced by bands like MC5, who are legendary, uh, I think nominated five times for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, haven't made it yet. That band with one living member who we're going to talk about him in this episode, but you grew up in that scene with James Jamerson, rock and roll hall of fame bass player, one of the first sidemen to be in, inducted into the hall of fame. And, and then you traveled to New York to the whole hipster punk new wave scene there. And this is all where your music came from. So let's talk about that. When did you start writing songs and why did you start writing songs and how did this melting pot of Detroit music influence kind of affect your initial songwriting? First of all, to start off, I was born in Buffalo, New York, and uh, my parents moved us to Florida in the 50s. I was very young and uh, my brother and older brothers, and we moved to Florida. My dad had a small house built there, two bedroom or three bedroom, and I was there for about five or six years. And we moved to Detroit. My brother had passed away 
somehow he got leukemia back in the 60s. Yeah, 16 years old and uh, passed away. So it was like a big dream, a beautiful thing going from Buffalo with the snow and the gray and dark and then hitting Florida. And we're outside every day playing as kids and then this dark thing. Uh, we decided for a change as the 60s were starting and we went to Detroit. My mom's sister lived there. So we stayed with them and got an apartment. And then we moved into, into a house. And as this was going on, Motown's just getting up and running. You're hearing Shop Around by Smokey Robinson. I'm preteen, way preteen. Still growing up. I liked piano. I wanted to play piano. It wasn't in the cards at the time. Back then, there weren't all sorts of electronic pianos and big pianos. You had to have, you know, the whole thing was different. Nowadays, you could go, you know, you could pull up a piano on a screen, you know. The whole Detroit thing, it was like a, a small community of really strong uh, ties to a very big worth ethic, and music was everywhere. It was from jazz, blues, everything. So that was the outlet because 24 hours a day, they're building cars, you know, up until the 70s. So there was a big entertainment scene, people coming in from all, all over, from uh, lounge shows to uh, jazz to uh, lounge singers and a lot of soul groups. There were mostly soul bands at the time. You had the Motown thing. And then next thing you know, it's the Animals, the Kinks, Rolling Stones. And that's when I started learning to play. Around uh, 64, I wanted a guitar, uh, 1964. And my parents took my brother and I and we got guitars. I was going to get drums. I got guitars. I didn't want to lug the drums around. Guy goes, you want, you know, you're gonna have to carry these around. And I go, well, maybe I'll better get a guitar. <laughs> That's how you switch to guitar from just because of the weight of the drums. <laughs> yeah, luckily. Anyway, uh, that's what did it. That music was really uh, prominent. They're just getting going in Detroit. There's a huge radio station over in Windsor across the bridge, across the border, Windsor, Canada. That station was like 50,000 watts, not unlike the station that ZZ Top and people in California had Mexican channels that would play rhythm and blues. We were getting the rock and roll, the soul. They were playing everything from Aretha Franklin to James Brown. And then you'd get the Rolling Stones and you'd get the Animals and you'd get Bob Seger when he was first starting out. Early Grand Funk uh, called The Pack, Terry Knight and The Pack. But Terry Knight was a, uh, was a DJ. He went to lead sing uh, with Terry Knight. And The Pack became Grand Funk Railroad. And there was also the Lazy Eggs, which was... Oh, God, I'm not going to remember the names. There were guys playing in all these small bands who that became big bands around Detroit. And then you had the MC5, Grand Funk Railroad. You had The Frost. You had SRC. Were you going out to all the clubs and listening to these bands play live? Like These bands were playing teen clubs at the time. And it was like they were the hippest bands because they were taking like a little bit of the Motown thing. Some of them were soul groups and the Beatle thing. And then some were taking the James Brown soul thing and had the Yardbirds thing, like the MC5 were really like Yardbirds who mixed with James Brown show, you know, like. And a real political like driven show, right? I mean, you know, very 60s sort of political activists in their music, like the original. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, Wayne Kramer, uh, who played on one of my songs, 67 Riot, the MC5 had moved from Detroit to Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor was this burgeoning liberal rebel, hippie, counterculture. I mean, huge, huge. So we had the best music. The scene was happening. The Grandy Ballroom started. There was the, the Hideout was a club that all those bands played. And then they went from the Hideout to the Grandy Ballroom. 
And there were three hideouts, east, west, and I think there was a north one, I think. I think it was. But um, Mitch Ryder used to, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels came out around 61, 62. They were playing the Wall Lake Casino out near Ann Arbor. In all the other interviews, you didn't mention Mitch Ryder, but I think his influence was so profound on your the romantics sound. To me, that was I was like, I'm surprised you hadn't mentioned Mitch Ryder in the other interviews that you've done. But he's the Detroit Wheels, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. And you do shake the tail feather, which he also does in his show. Yeah, uh, sh- yeah, Shake a Tail Feather was a uh, Motown, was it a Motown song. I think it was a. Motown. It was originally a Motown song by the Root Tones. I think it was originally. Uh, well, either Martha Reeves or um, or someone else. I'll I'll think of it. We did a little Latin Loopy Lou. We used that in our early set. And actually, what I like about you, you know, little Latin Loopy Lou in this intro has hey it has haze in it. Let's talk about it since you brought it up. What I like about you. Okay. The song has had 128 million plays on Spotify and still counting. It is obviously a huge song in your career. I think it is the lyrically most important use of the word hey in any rock and roll song. (laughs) But to hear you, you say you were referencing other things with that hey. Well, yeah, because when I wrote it, I, mean, I came in with it and brought it to the rehearsal studio and the drummer was there and I got there early and I never got there early. My mom had to drop me. I didn't have a car at the time. The band was in its second year, I think. And you're still in Detroit. You're in Detroit. Your mom's dropping you off in your car. Yep. Yep. My car was gone, gone. I forget what happened, but uh, I got dropped off. I got there early. The other two guys weren't there yet. Molly and Rich, and then me and Jimmy were there, and I showed them this idea to set the mood. We always had our uh, store, old storefronts, old storefronts. They might have been a hairdresser in the 50s, or they might have been a tool shop, and they were like usually not more than 20 feet wide and 
50 feet long. So everyone would put foam up and egg cartons up and you close the door and you're in there all, all night and you're there all, we were, I was there the whole year, you know, go there every night and we, we jam and play and write songs. And we were into writing, creating other bands would use it to put songs together for a ship for, to, uh, to play bars, whatever. It was all dark. You walk in, it's all black, a couch on one end, the drums and amps stretched out with lights up. We had it. So it looks like a stage. You know, so we actually felt like we were creating a show and that's what we were doing. We had a little space before that was a barbershop and it was all mirrors so we could play and look at the mirrors and see how we were doing. That was earlier. What I like about you was created in this one space, long space, the lights were on. I come in, the spotlights are down, Jimmy's in there. I told him, I got this idea. He got on drums and I played the idea and he started just, you know, when you write a song, sometimes it's mumbo jumbo. Go out, you're just singing rhythms with your voice. And that's what he did. And he started, you know, he's throwing words in here and there. So he was coming up with a, a verse. And everyone in the band at the time, Romantics, everyone sang lead vocal. I sang a couple, three songs in the set, three, four songs. Wally, Rich, Jimmy, we all sang songs. So it wasn't like, you're the lead singer, you're the only guy. You're the lead singer, Jimmy. You know, it was it was a, a, a full-on thing. We wanted it to be interesting live, so so we all did it. Yeah, I always loved the three chord song, Gloria, all the Van Morrison stuffs, close to three three chord songs. Like you said, Mitch Ryder, he did those simple songs, Little Lant and Loopy Lou, had the haze, and uh, out, you know, over under sideways down from the Yardbirds, hey, bam, ba hey, so. It was just in the back of my head. And I go, what about it? I started doing haze in a, in a park. Blah, 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 blah. Hey, somewhere. And we actually did it in. Uh-huh. I came up. Hey, uh-huh. I just, I'm just jamming and Jimmy's singing, you know? And no other words. That's the whole words that you're working with at this point. You got the melody and you got the hey and the uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so far. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And the beat. That's the whole thing. It's the chords, the guitar chords, my my simple backbeat the way I strum because of the drum thing. When I first started out, I, I, my first song I learned on drums was probably a Mitch Ryder song because I had, that's the only 45 I had was uh devil with a blue dress or that's right. No, Jenny, take a ride. Jenny, 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 Jenny take, yeah, yep. take a ride with me. Yeah. So I learned that on, I was just messing around with it on pans or whatever the floor. I had a snare drum. I joined the boy scouts because they had drums. I wanted drums to play. And I was in there for a month and I got a snare drum and I brought it home and messed around with that. And then they wanted it back. So I gave it back and I quit the Boy Scouts. I went on one camp out, I think. And they didn't let you bring your snare drum on the camp outs. <laughs> that was the end of that, huh? Well, it was about music. So right then you're talking, I was 13, 13. That was probably just before I thought about guitar. That was, I wasn't even thinking guitar. Anyway, so yeah, so that song just kind of happened. It, it fell out of Jimmy, it fell out of me. And actually, up until he recorded, we recorded it three years later, got signed three years later. We were on the road for three years and uh, back and forth to, forth to New York. He was still singing two verses that were mumbo jumbo. He was jamming. So, you know, he, he probably had a set thing, but he'd, he'd go up, well, look at that girl in the corner and sing that. You know, she's wearing a mini dress. She's dancing like this. She's moving like that, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, he finished it off. You just kind of worked it out on stage live. Like 
as part of your performance over three years of touring? Because you guys toured relentlessly in this period, right? New York all the time and Boston and Philly. Playing some legendary clubs like the Ratskeller and Max's Kansas City and... and we went in 19... I'm, I'm getting off track. I, usually I follow... An arc. But anyway, all this music that came out of Detroit, let's put it that way. All the Motown stuff gave the romantics, its melody, its groove, its beat, the energy and attitude of the city, the dirty, grimy. At that time, Detroit was 24 hours a day building cars. Uh, I don't think there were many women working there. And I think black folks were probably doing more menial jobs there at the time. That's the way it was. And it's not right. And that's why the riots happened, because a lot of that kind of stuff going on in Detroit in 1967. But the music was and the entertainment of the city was uh, integral and it was part of what the city's made of. And it was more multicultural, I get the sense. I mean, you know, Motown crossed over to the white crowd and the white crowd crossed over into soul. And the working and- class and the working class people were coming from everywhere to work in uh, Detroit, you know, largest uh, city for. Uh, for for all kinds, everywhere, for all, all kinds of uh, nationalities came, coming into Detroit. The Melody's classic. I think your music at this point is three chords. <laughs> Most of the time. But no one plays three chords the way the romantics play the three chords. I read this somewhere. It's like, yeah, you can talk about a song being three chords, but the way that you guys do three chords is really, really unique in the best way possible. Like. <laughs> Yeah, that's from listening to Pete Townsend play three chords and listen to all the other stuff that came before. You know, Eddie Cochran. Eddie Cochran was three chords. Buddy Holly was three chords. Uh, Ricky Nelson was three or four chords. But they sound great when you put them together the way you put them together. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's this arm right here. <laughs> and that's, that was Jimmy's, you know, left hand and his foot. <laughs> But I'm still doing that with guys. I'll have a guy come in, a drummer, Brad Elvis, who works with us now. He does a lot of my stuff. I do the solo stuff. He knows exactly what beats I need to hear, you know, when I'm playing a rhythm and that. He, he, the drummers I've used, they know it's got the backbeat and it's got a swing. It's usually got a swing to it like Ringo. It's not just straight robotic. It's got a lust to it. It's got a a lust. I love that. I never heard that before. But the the backbeat has a lust to yeah, it. Yeah, it does. It draws you in. It it uh, excites you, and it amplifies your senses. You know. Well, you know what I like about you is a sort of lustful statement. And when did that come about? It. You know, you're still like doing this vocal ease on stage with Jimmy. Jimmy's singing, and then you got what I like about you, and then he's uh, then he's just uh, he had the title, I had the music, and and you're playing it off the audiences. A lot of your songs do talk about like the guy chasing the girl, and this is sort of in that realm, but you know, a true classic of the guy chasing the girl. And it's what I like about you and all the things he likes about her. And so when did it all come together around the lyrics so that you're ready to cut it? Like, did it morph as you're on the road and you're experimenting with stuff? And like, yeah, I asked this question to every songwriter. When do you know a song is done? And like, this is one that you did it, you recorded it and it's less than three minutes of hit music. You have to remember our packaging, our formula was the one formula that was coming up before us and that we were coming out in front of was all this progressive music that the songs were long drawn out guitar solo 
Yes, Kansas sticks, all that FM radio stuff that took over in the late 70s. It wasn't Humble Pie where it was rhythm and blues. It wasn't Small Faces with and without Rod Stewart. It had become this long drawn out things. This is Led Zeppelin. We, I grew up on this stuff. I learned how to play all that on that, you know, Led Zeppelin, all that stuff came out 1968. Our heart, our soul was in the stuff before that, the psychedelic stuff coming out of Pink Floyd, the first two albums, the move, which uh, became ELO. Sure, all the influences. Yeah, yeah the, uh, the pretty things, Rolling Stones. The Flaming Groupies you mentioned once. I had flaming to look groovies, them up. Groovies. <laughs> the Flaming Groovies. From right. San Francisco. That's another story that goes with one of the songs. But So there's this whole like scene, the mod scene happened, and, and the Beatlemania scene happened. Then the blues scene was happening. Then the mod scene was happening. Then it became a psychedelic scene. This was all in England, and it was spreading around the world. I mean, it was on the West Coast, California. That's where we were. We were the kinks and the kinks thing and the Beatles. So that's why it was a simple song, simple melody, simple subject matter. And just like Rick Nelson and Buddy Holly, we were taking all the bands with these long, stretched out, enormous songs. Yes, they had an album of four albums once, four records. Um, and we were still digging, and, and we're digging, and Embassy 5 were coming out and Iggy and the Stooges, you know, and no one in, in the U.S. was ready for that. And they still aren't. They won't even put the MC 5 on the Hall of Fame. So they were too radical. Detroit was uh, animalistic in a lot of ways. You guys were this response to that progressive rock thing. I think the Ramones in New York and Blondie who were, and, you know, also had this sort of two and a half minute song, heavily structured thing. And the Sex Pistols were doing it in England at the same, and the Clash was doing it in England. And, and you were like part of this Detroit crowd that moved to New York and tapped into it and cut this song, What I Like About You. Well, we were... Totally Detroit. We're totally about Detroit. But we were pulling in all this stuff. We were all feeling the same thing at the same time in L.A., in New York, in London, and in cities around the U.S., and Detroit one, being one of them, was a change in uh, shorter songs, melodies, banging your songs out, banging out, even the punk thing. And there's a lot of bands that, that didn't go farther than a few records that were great bands out of Boston. Well, I think there was a band, The Third Rail, and The Real Kids out of Boston. I'd have to go back and look at my list, but there's... Well, obviously the cars made it, you know, to the big time out of that scene. But. Right. Uh, but there was tons of bands coming out of uh, Philly and uh, LA, The Nerves, who only reached uh, one album. And then it was Paul Collins and then The Beat and all that. And uh, God, you guys had your ears open to everything, you know, interesting. Yeah. And then in San Francisco, you know, had crime, you had crime and you had acts and you had all that stuff was happening. What opened my eyes that we could do it too, was the whole idea of shorter songs, the punk scene, and then the jam, the way they looked with their mod look again in 1980, 1977, 78. And then the Flame and Groovies brought out, um, it was looked like a Beatles record. It sounded like a Beatles record. Dave Edmonds produced it. But you guys went with the red leather look and the, or the, pink letter and i read that you did that because they were throwing bottles and other stuff at you and it was easier to clean <laughs> is there any truth to that or is it just you like the leather look it was some combination of the two well it's, it's not quite that but yeah it's close you have to that's a matter of five years apart but uh uh four or five years apart we started with uh resale shop clothes from salvation army 
stuff with skinny uh, lapels, skinny ties, small collared shirts, peg leg pants, and beetle boots. And those things, by the time we finished the show, were all tattered and wet and falling apart because they were 1950s, 1960s, and they were iridescent suits, you know, they'd shine different colors and they fall apart. Well, you break a sweat in your show. I mean, back then, and you still do, right? It's still a workout. We got into the music so much that, I mean, just playing, we were drenched. We were drenched and the clothes were falling apart and we needed something stronger. So we went to vinyl. So around 77, 1978, we had someone that we knew and they sold red vinyl, white vinyl, black vinyl, black vinyl with white polka dots, with jackets. You know, we were totally in Roxy Music kind of thing. They Roxy Music always had a great look, great look, Brian Ferry, you know, Bowie and all the glitter. So we weren't afraid in the clubs to come out in vinyl and black vinyl, pink vinyl, red vinyl. And we did it. I mean, it was just mainly for the durability. But then when we got signed, we had some money. So we said, let's do something like Motown, get suits made, but let's do something that's more rock. So it was vinyl and leather. So the leather, we had a girl that we knew that sold leather. She did stuff for the uh, Funkadelic, George Clinton and the folks that worked with him. So we designed, we figured suits like uh, Motown, short jackets, kind of look the same cut. Because in the 60s, you could get leather jackets in different colors. And we just took it to the next length. You get green and red and blue and you know, walking around Detroit, you have a little red leather suit coat, you know, in the 60s. But uh, people were really into clothes back then in the 60s, walking down the street, just going shopping back then. We took that mantle and that's what we felt, flew with. We flew with the leather. But unfortunately, I was the rebel in me, the loudmouth and the guy with the spark and the, the attitude. I didn't want to do that every record. I And I didn't want to look like, I also wanted that punk raw raw attitude in there too it didn't have to have i didn't want it to be just clean and sharp it had to have that torn shirt here and there beat up boots you know raw hair messed up hair so you never did the mohawk or the or the like piercing of the cheek or anything funky no we like didn't get that. that far but we had the energy and the attitude of the mc5 it definitely so. had the energy and the attitude and, and you guys broke a sweat on stage and i imagine you still still do in your, in your shows. Um, well, when you come up with easy, easy songs, like what I like about you, it's easy to move around the stage and do things and, you know, perform. And get the audience fired up, which is what happens at your shows and did happen then, right? Like on fire. Do you remember what was the best places where the crowd just lit up? Do you remember? Everywhere was really good. I mean, cause Australia loved you people. Like, you guys were huge in Australia. Number one, what I like about you and the record, uh, Japan and in France, Germany, Holland. Holland, what I like about you went up, was climbing in the charts. Before we did the video, they called us up to do the video. Canada went to number one. Yeah, it was, it was, it was working. It wasn't in the charts, though. In Billboard charts, it went to 47, 48, 49. Yeah, it was the third single off the first record. We spent three years on the road, going everywhere. We got signed by Nat Weiss, Emperor Records, new label. It was a custom label, independent label of Epic Portrait, which is a custom label of Epic, CBS. So we were a custom of a custom, uh, independent of an independent. You couldn't get more independent. 
they latched onto the three songs, tell it to carry uh, when I look in your eyes and what I like about you. And they all reached the top 100. What I like about you was number 47 and fell off that started falling off the charts. The management went and talked to the label. They came back and told us they want us to do another record. And we just put out the first record. We toured the United States on the first record. We played with Cheap Trick. We played with uh, ZZ Top somewhere in Ted Nugent in El Paso, Texas. We played uh, intermittent shows with Talking Heads and, you know, whoever was out at the time. The pol- we did the police tour just before the record came out. Our record came out. We Police were playing small 100-seat clubs like we were. We were racing to Toronto, you know, down the Queens Highway. You know, they got stopped. We didn't, you know, we're laughing. <laughs> You're waving at Sting as he's pulled over by a cop and Andy Summer. <laughs> That's so funny. Pretty much. You did this first record and the label, you're having this big success. So the label's putting the pressure on you to give him more of the same, perhaps, or, you know, get out another record right away. Yeah, another or- record. You need new songs. Well, wait a minute. We haven't conquered the world yet. We haven't, we haven't gone to London. We haven't gone to England, you know, but we followed what the management wanted us to do. And we had spent, you know, three, four years writing the songs for the first record. Now we had to come up. Okay, the first Romantics record came out in 80, the first album of the 80s, I guess. It was. It, it was released on January 4th in, in 1980 in the UK. And it was the first album released in the decade. Yeah, I, I was just reminded of that. I forgot totally about that. But uh, it came out and it was... Uh, slowly dipping off the charts and they didn't, I don't know why they didn't put out a fourth song or we should have jumped on the tour right, right to Europe, right to England. We should because we were, it was picking up on steam there. We're playing the whiskey a go-go and we got a call that the record is climbing the charts in Europe, in Holland. They wanted to come over and film us for a video. So two guys came over with one camera, cool dudes and came over. They came over to whiskey a go-go. We're playing first time playing with the whiskey, which is, you know, big, Big time for it. Yeah. They came into our sound check. They wanted to do what I like about you. And I think when I look in your eyes, maybe we wanted to look like big faces, big right on the mic. We wanted to look like a little bit like a raw version of a uh, hard day's night kind of thing, more attitude. So they filmed close. They filmed from uh, 20 feet away and then way out in the audience. And they did it like in 20 minutes and we're done. You know, it didn't cost anything. I mean, years later, we're spending $40,000 on, on videos or more. And yeah, definitely more. And um, that was it. That took off. That's And it was the perfect vibe for the song being black and white. We wanted it black and white-ish, red, black and white, and uh, red shirts. Did that become the MTV video? Yeah, because they were still doing videos in Europe. I mean, they still had And, and MTV needed. Video badly and was just launching at the time. It wasn't even there yet. Yep, it was going to Europe. The video was going to Europe. It went to. It was in Holland and London and, and and Australia and Japan. So all those countries still had the TV shows where they played videos. It took off. It went to number one in those countries, and they came back to us. And next thing you know, next, the next year, I think it was the next year, or the end of the year, uh, MTV started. So then it jumped on that, and that's what really kicked it in into the vibe. Wasn't a number one hit in in the U.S. It wasn't number one in, on Billboard. It didn't have like My Sharona. It didn't have magazines paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to pre- play My Sharona by the neck, you know, on Billboard, whatever. All these newspapers, all the everywhere. 
that didn't have the the big label promotion behind it. We didn't have that. We were on the road, on the road, on the road. We love the neck. That's not the point. The point is we were a working class band. That's what the point is. And uh, with great music, with a great hook and a great song, and at least one great song, <laughs> more than that, <laughs> right? And a great act to watch. I mean, the energy of these shows is legendary. I mean, you had to wear leather suits because you wore them out. You sweated through the other There's no band <laughs> like the Five and like James Brown. Like it was a show and we were still into a show. And a lot of bands were, it, it wasn't really about that too much. We we still had that Motowny kind of, we made it, wanted to make sure we were, all, someone was always singing, a different person was always singing. We wanted to make sure we were moving around on stage and, not greeting, but involving with the audience, bring them into it. And it had to be songs that were short and they could go home and they'd walk out in the parking lot to the car. They could sing the song. They could remember the, the chorus. Now, how hard is that? I mean, you see bands now with five guys and no one sings. No one sings backup. I don't want to give anyone any ideas because that's a great formula. <laughs> They've been copying you for years. No, 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 no. It just was our formula. It was our formula. The second record, you take a hiatus of sorts. Like you leave the band. They cut a record that- I was fired. No, I was fired. You were fired. And then they bring you back. You co-write Talking in Your Sleep, which is the second biggest hit. Well, first we were we were in that Whiskey Go-Go thing. And then we got it. We were going, we were either touring England London, or we're going to Australia. We went to Australia. We had just recorded the second record, National Breakout. I had to come up with ideas for songs, new songs that I didn't even know what it was going to be. And none of us did. And we worked together. But usually I would come up with like a guitar part or a thing, an idea, and say, here, you know, and we'd gel it and we'd have an album. It was actually, I think, kind of traumatic having to go back in the studio and come up with brand new stuff. It wasn't conducive to really good uh, vibes within the whole organization. And then we went to Australia. The songs were brand new. We rehearsed for three, four weeks, went to Australia, and I wasn't playing them exactly like I should have. I thought I could go on and just kind of wing it. And I was it wasn't the best. I mean, it was okay. The show was good. Came back, and there was a bunch of attitudes. And I always had a way to rub the management about royalties, and they didn't keep her for that too much. and. So I was gone. They did a record that didn't have the sound of the romantics because it didn't have my guitar parts, my guitar sound and the ideas, the same type of ideas. It didn't really show up. And so uh, I wasn't really playing. I was hearing a lot of new music coming out of uh, London was the new romance, new romantic bands, Duran Duran, Spando Ballet, Ultravox was around before that. But all these new dance sounding bands production got more uh, emphasis. There was the production of music jumped a hundred percent because in the, in the punk days, it was just raw, good in the studio, bang it out is raw, the rawer, the better. Now you're coming back to a whole different thing. So I got a call that they wanted me to come back. They were going to either get me back or get someone to write songs that they want. Someone's going to hire somebody to write song. So a songwriter to work with the group. So they called me and then I, I agreed and went back in the band. And after their third record, which was without me, the fourth record was in heat. That's one. Sick of being upsold at gyms. 
My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Tell me about talking in your sleep. Let's talk about this. Was this about a person in your life? Uh, no. No. Okay. What I like about you was about every girl that was in the audience when you were making the song up on the road, it sounds like. Right? Jimmy finalized the lyrics for What I Like About You. So it's whoever he was dreaming of. And then What I Like About Talking in Your Sleep is whoever he was thinking about there. Well, first of all, Nashville Breakout went up to number 75 or something. It didn't receive that great. It had a more live sound. We went to the studio, wanted it to be more live and more raw. But everything was kind of changing a little bit. There was great songs on there, but we were playing them faster. We're opening shows for the Ramones. We're, you know, we're, we're banging out songs harder and faster. And so the songs were written a little bit more quicker on the beat. And the production was a little different. So it didn't really kick. Anyway, that's gone. I'm fired, gone. And then I'm asked to come back and I had, we did rehearsals. I came back in, we rehearsed for a month. We went on the road with a bunch of new songs. Talking Your Sleep was nowhere, but Rock You Up was there. Maybe a couple others, not too many others, two or three others. Then we had to start writing again. We had to start writing for the, for In Heat record. And I had just jam, the da-da-dum, da-da-dum. I had the bass part. That's it. Jimmy had the groove. I had the bass part. We jammed with it and jammed with it, jammed with it. It didn't really go anywhere. We would uh, do a, it's called a one, four, five. We do just a, a straight bluesy kind of thing. But the bass part was something and the groove was something. So we did pre-production for In Heat. We had all the songs. We went in the studio and we recorded all the songs, all the backtracks, all the vocals. And then we, the producer comes in and goes, we need one more song. And we did have a song. So he goes, Mike, what about that song you had back in Detroit? 
and we're in the studio. And we actually came up with talking to you to sleep in the studio. You finished the song in the in the studio. Well, no, we actually took my bass part and the drum part, and we messed around with it. And the producer, being the genius that he was, he was really really good with music and songwriting and harmonies. He, he'd help us make sure we were finishing a melody off the correct way with on the right note and all that, and taking the third out in the vocal or adding a fifth where you have ghost notes instead of singing the note. People hear the note, but it's not there, that kind of harmony. And so we got the keyboard, the word sir, put it in the control room, and me and Peter Solly, Jimmy, were running through stuff, we're like kind of talking together, close, we're huddled. And we're like, what about these chords? What about this chord? What about that chord? Pete's doing this on the piano and he's going like that. And so I'm going like, what about this? Turn around. What about, it's like kind of a thing. And in the meantime, Jimmy, I think he's thinking of words and titles. Then we finally get the arrangement. And then we agreed on a melody for the chorus. First it was that's all we had from the piano and the guitar. Someone goes, I hear the secrets that you keep when you're talking in your sleep. Someone goes, when you're talking in your sleep. Someone said it. I don't know who said it. We're all throwing stuff around back and forth. And then came down, I hear the secrets that you keep when you're talking in your sleep. Was there an instantaneous feeling like, that's it. That's the title of the song. That's the whole theme of the song. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What's that feeling like? I'm always looking for the words to describe that feeling on this show. For me, I'm not thinking that far ahead. I'm still going, okay, what's going to come next? I'm thinking, okay, so how the verse is going to go? I'm more like, that's down. Now, let's see. That part's done. What's next? How are we going to get from the beginning to that? <laughs> okay, interesting. You're not, your mind is working on the bigger picture of the whole song, but you know that that piece is locked down and that's great. I'm not relaxing yet. And the keyboard's still there. And I'm also thinking of intros to it too. So... You get the groove, you jam on it, you play it, and then probably a, a melody came somewhere. So that's, you know, where the verse came from. When you close your eyes and you go to sleep, that's Jimmy. Jimmy working his mind. And I think he took those few things there. Probably he might have had a sketch. Of, I don't know how far he had along on the verse. He, and I think he was going to sing it. Jimmy was going to sing it. I'm sure he had the first few lines. We, went, we were done that night, that day. We went home and went to the hotel. We're in Florida, North Miami Beach, the old 1950s hotels. The Sahara with a camel out front or whatever, and palm trees, a desert thing. And all those 50s hotels, right on the water. We get up at nine in the morning and one room would have all the bagels and cream cheese or whatever, coffee or toast or whatever. We go have that at nine o'clock and then we go to the studio at 11 o'clock after going into the pool. So that's what we did the next day after talking to your sleep. He hadn't finished up all the lyrics. We laid down the track. We probably did that track that day. So it was probably one day for the whole thing to come together, the backtrack. Then we needed a hook. I'm like spot on for hooks. I can come up with a, a guitar hook and all that. I think Cause was trying something. And I'm always like, I can do it on guitar. Like the Who with um, Substitute. Bum, 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 that's my kind of rhythm, like what I like about you. Like Can't Explain and like the Hollies where they have the 12 string in the intro of song or the Beatles where they have these intros. That's where I was good, I'm good at on guitar. I, I can hook to the melody and devise it where it's different than melody, but it's an intro. 
So that's I started doing uh, dun, 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 that kind of thing with the talk in your sleep. So that's where that came from. It was me and Cause, but that's my forte is those those little hooks. It's magical. It's magical. So when you're done with the song, do you know it's a hit? No, you know, I'm not. We're not thinking that. We're not thinking that. We're thinking, wow, it's a good day in the studio. We got good songs done. We're finished with the record, but we're leaving. And the guy that sweeps up and cleans up and straightens up the chords and everything in the studio goes, man. This black cat, he's been there for years. He's been there 30 years. He helps out the studio. Anything you need. And he goes, that song's a hit. And I know the hits. And I've called out a lot of hits. He goes, that's your hit. We go, oh, okay, okay. You know, okay, whatever you say. Thank you. Thanks for the accolade. But he knew it. Yeah, he knew it. He knew it. We were too close to it. You're too close to it. Uh, your, your, your mind is still in the album, in, in making of the record, doing the work for the ingredients of the soup. Talking Your Sleep has had 56 million Spotify plays to date and counting. See, I don't like hearing that stuff because then when I, now when I go right. Well, yeah, yeah, you know, you know, you happen to have written some great songs, Mike. That's why you're on the show. I don't think about it. See, when you bring, and when I'm doing an interview and they bring stuff up like that, it automatically goes to that side where I go, I'm not opening that door. So let me ask you a different question. Let me ask you a different question. Have you ever been in a karaoke bar where they played either of those two songs. Oh, yeah, yeah. Have you ever gotten up and yeah, sung? Yeah, so, uh, You have sung to your karaoke bar? Sure. Your, your own songs. What's that feeling like? We're imbibing and having drinks, having fun, and everybody's... And they have your song on the karaoke list, and someone punches the number, and you get up and... And you think you're smart enough to go up there and do it. <laughs> you probably know the words, right? <laughs> no, that's great. I would have loved to have seen that. I asked that question because I did see Mac Davis sing Baby Baby Hooked on Me in a karaoke bar once. And I was like, I got to ask songwriters if that's ever happened. Do you remember where you were the first time you heard a romantic song on the radio? Either we were on the road and the police were out, we were on that tour and we were driving or something. Direct. You heard um, Tell Your Straits were just coming out and police were out and then Romantics came on the radio or something. And that's the first time you heard it on the radio? Yeah, upstate New York or on the way to New York or Boston or, or on the way to Toronto or something, somewhere. And did you keep driving or did you oh, pull no, over? Oh, we pulled over. For sure, pulled over, yeah. <laughs> you didn't want to lose the signal in, in upstate New York on AM radio or something? <laughs> so, yeah. So, I usually set that stuff aside and I'm I'm back in my, my feet firmly on the ground and my head in the right spot now when, when I write. And I'm still the kind of writer I wrote when I wrote in the first early days of Romantics. I was unsure of things when we went in and did the second record because everyone's telling you, it sounds great. You sound great. It's great, great, great. And my head was like, kind of like not, I didn't know what was good and what wasn't good at the time. And so what was important was in my head again. In some respects, it was good to have a hiatus and a, a, a break to re-energize your creative muse. Yeah.
One of the other hit songs you wrote was One in a Million. Can we talk about this one? We were having some kind of business uh, meeting at the manager's condo. The music came to my mind for One in a Million. Bum, 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 Right, that whole, dum, ba, dum, ba, dum, ba, dum, ba, dum. The whole thing was in my head. And I just kept it in my head till I got home and uh, worked it out and then brought it to the studio. Do you ever forget those melodies when they come to you? Or like, does it? it yeah, not now though. I got my phone. On One in a Million, this is a real group co-write. It sounds like a lot of the songs were group co-writes. You guys really had a real collaborative relationship. And actually, it's the only song that me and Jimmy sat down and we actually came up together. So that's kind of interesting right there. On One in a Million, it's credited to Wally, Jimmy, and George, and yourself. Well, yeah. Sometimes you give credit to people that uh, really did take part. So management's making you be nice. Why don't you give a chunk to him, too? I spent the weekend listening to your new stuff, which we're going to talk about, and the full romantics repertoire that's out there that I could find. And you guys never stop writing about girls. Like every song is about a boy chasing a girl. Was this an obsession for you guys as a group? <laughs> or was this like the, the thing that it was like a, by design? All we're going to do is write about girls. And that's what the radio wants to hear is guys writing about girls. And that's what we do. And 21 and over is a song about being 21 over and not being able to get in the club. Okay. Right. I don't, feel, I don't know if he alludes to a girl being in the club, but. But why do you want to get in the club? It's like you want to get in the club to, to meet the girls, right? <laughs> like, it's, it's like, it's always in the song. It's. And then you got National Breakout is about, um, I think it's kind of about radio and press. It's The title came from Billboard, National Breakout. And I think they took an aversion to that because National Breakout was a chart. And if you were a National Breakout, you were cooking. And I think they kind of took a version that we used. We called the album National Breakout. Like we were going to be on the National Breakout chart. And the song was called National Breakout. Yeah, I was just looking at like Be My Everything, Make It Last, Mystified. Well, Take Me Out of the Rain probably ended up being about a girl. Yeah, you guys like the girls, I guess. I mean, was this an inspiration or was it by design? Well, like I said, when you're six, seven, eight years old, you hear Buddy Holly or whatever it was, and you hear Buddy Holly, you hear Elvis, you hear, you know, we grew up really young, but we still heard those titles. And then that's a seeped in later to when we're teens. That's the way it was. Motown was all about that. And so that's what we were writing about. And I mean, yeah, well, punk was writing about something else. Punk bands were writing about something else sometimes. Yeah, that's one another thing that I would talk about when I was the upstart, right? Come on, we need to get more, maybe a little more political, maybe a little more what's going on. But we kind of tried to stay away from it. We might hit on that, but it didn't work. It didn't work. Did you try it and it didn't work? Like try to go in a different direction and it didn't work or? Well, I would try. I would try that. My development wasn't completely there like it is now for coming up with lyrics, melody, titles, intros. Now I can do the whole song and I can write anything I want, you know, 67 Riot. And it could be better than this. Another song about coming together.
This is one of my things on this show is that great songwriters like yourself don't stop writing great songs. Yeah. Unless something gets in the way in their life, but you know, it's a skill. It's this unique thing. I call it the invisible language, this marriage of sound and words that combines into a song that evokes an emotion of some sort in a listener. That's my definition of a song. Not everybody has this capability of writing this invisible language, this combination of words and sounds. And you've sent me two great songs that, like a great songwriter, you're capable of writing. And we're going to share them with our audience, if that's okay. And the backstory on them, the first one I want to talk about is Not My Business. Not My Business. The title came up in a conversation I was having with uh, Cheryl Jordan we was talking about something and I go, that's not my business. Uh, and then I logged it right in my head. I go, that's my title for something. And we had been talking about getting together, exchanging ideas for songs before that. And so I logged that away. I was going to see the Flaming Groovies and it, it happened backstage in the middle of a conversation. I said that and I kept the title in my head. It's funny how these things happen. It's, it's very unexplainable how sometimes it's very eerie. It's just kind of like, it comes out of nowhere. It just comes, it's it's really how things fit together when it shouldn't fit together. It's just like, it's like there's this other thing happening and it just, the song and the melody, okay, that fits. And then the groove fits. And then I'm coming up with a word here and a word there. Next thing you go, I got, I've got a line. And then I'm, the second line all that pops in. And then I've got a whole verse. I got the verse. I say, well, I'm keeping on going. Just keep on going. I always tell myself to keep on writing. Don't pick up the pens. Don't stop. Write what keeps coming to your head. And then I take it and then go to the next phase. I, I might not get a chorus. I might get a build up to a chorus. It's something. It's, it's, it's something there and I've got it. And then I've editing on 67 Riot. I really had to edit that. Uh, not my business. I really, that took a lot because I put myself in a position. I made the verse a long verse, like a, a, a jagger, get off my cloud. Ba-da, 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 ba-da. I put myself in a position to do that. So I had to work on it a lot to get it, to build from one idea to the next idea, the first subject matter to the next what's happening and why this is happening and what's going to happen to her or it, where it's going to go bad for her because she's never cared before and she's in a fix now. She's been hanging out with everybody and now she wants to get right with things, but uh, really still off track and not agreeing that she has a problem or I don't want to get into what it's about, but up to you if you want to talk about that. We can. You know, it took time. It took time to make everything fit together. The verses were long. And the, the not by business part came up first. Not by business. I wanted to just have uh, the same movement as a Stones or a uh, a Who thing. So the, it's got that small faces, 70s small faces Who thing. The way the melody goes with the chords. And- the guitar work on this is stunning. And it has so many layers. 
And the guitar break in the song is super cool. Like it's this fuzz tone, but then you layer some really clean, pristine notes through the fuzz tone guitar on top of it. And then that fades out and the fuzz tone comes back. And then at the very end, you break it all apart and you can hear all the components of your guitar work sort of individually as you fade out. And I was like, this song is so cool from a guitar listener's standpoint. I love it. The Stones and the Rod Stewart, all those guys back then, they used to do that. They, in the studio, the tape would keep rolling, they keep playing. And I wanted to have that kind of flavor where it just bled off the tape, like bled at the end. The thing is, like you're saying, is, yeah, my sound has that chimey guitar sound from the telly. I'll lay a, another layer underneath that is a, a more Fender. One's more of a Vox tone with the bell chimes, bell tones. And then I'll run into a Fender or a Marshall to give it a, a little bit of that, but more of the attack, the kick. And I'll double up the clean part. And then the other part, I'll just all out. And the rhythm's got to be more direct and more free, more rebellious on the on the, the raw one. And then my friend, I didn't want my solo in it. I could have wrote a solo there. I knew that what I would have written would have fit perfectly for the song, but then the song would have sounded like all me. So I talked to my friend from Detroit, Ricky Rat. He played with the Dead Boys. He was on the Dead Boys tour a few years ago. He did two tours with them, and then they broke up, unfortunately. And uh, he's just a straight, raw rocker like a Johnny Thunders, but not Johnny Thunders. He's himself. He played with a group in Detroit. I'll think of the name. I, I'm, it's Trash Rats. And there were like a, a Detroit raw, dirtier version of New York Dolls. Ricky Rat and the Trash Brats. Doesn't that sound like a band you want to see in a in a dive bar in Detroit? I, that's like, I would love to be there. Look him up. Look him up. He's got great music. He's a great writer, great songwriter. I knew he was the right guy for this. Call him up. He came to the studio and he laid it down in like three takes. Three takes. You know, I go, this is what we need, you know, kind of like, I don't want to tell you what to play. Do what you got and put it on there. And he did it and it fit perfectly. I would have done something differently and, it, you know, I didn't want that. And you had Brad Elvis on the drums with the Elvis brothers and also the romantics. So yeah, nice backbeat on this and the drums and the power chords to open the song. They draw you in a great song. Not my business. Now, this is a Mike Skill song that we're releasing or has been released, except I hear like if you were to pitch this song to any contemporary band out there to play. Yeah. Who would you like to cover this song? It reminds me that that Nicky Hopkins and uh, early Rod Stewart era mixed with bootleg Rolling Stones or something. I was driving around listening to this today and I was like, oh my God, I can hear the Jonas Brothers doing this. Oh, wow. Interesting. And I was like, I was like, oh, I bet, I, wa I wonder how Mike would react to that if he would hate that, you know, like throw, <laughs> cut the interview off if I suggested that. Hey, that's your opinion. Uh, that's not my cup of tea. But yeah. Yeah. No, I was like, this could be a really cool, cause like not my business with the Jonas brothers. This is something you could sort of picture them saying, and they have multiple guitars and I could see them doing this. I could hear black crows doing it. Oh yeah. Or uh, there might be a way that uh, social distortion could do it in another form.
So let's talk about 67 Riot. You know, this feels to me like something I wish I had heard a lot of from you and perhaps the Romantics. It's like The Clash did Sandinista, the political record, like in that era. The theme of this is the Detroit 67 riots, which I wasn't as aware of as I should have been. But the theme of what caused those really hasn't changed much. And, you know, yesterday we had the George Floyd trial come back with a guilty verdict against the policeman, Derek Chauvin. You know, maybe we've made some progress in that regard on that issue. Tell me about 67 Riots in Detroit and what that meant to you and why you did this song. And you brought Wayne Kramer, who is a founding member of MC5, on the record with you. And for those of you who don't know MC5, it's a legendary band that did a lot of politically activist songs. So this is like right up his alley. Yeah, they were at the uh, convention, Democratic Convention in 1967, when the riots, when uh, the whole world's watching, when the riots happened, when they were beating heads in. That was 68. And I read today for the first time, they were playing, Neil Young was supposed to show up and play, and he no-showed, and everybody no-showed. So the MC5 played for supposedly eight hours. No, I think they played for a while, and the cops showed up, and then that was it. But I think Jefferson Airplane was supposed to play. Yeah, a whole bunch of acts were supposed to show up and the cops showed up and riots broke out. And so they were the only act that actually played at the Democratic Convention outdoors. Outdoors at Grant Park, I think it was. And Mayor Daly was going to knuckle down on everybody. And I remember watching it on TV. And you remember the 67 riots as well. So tell everybody what happened in the 67 riots in Detroit. Detroit is a union town. Detroit's a working class town. Like I said before, 24 hours a day building cars back then. They had their problems with uh, racism and they had their problems with inequities. And hey, I, I'm, it's not right for me to lay it out because I'm not, it doesn't happen to me until I grew my hair long. Then I knew what it was like to see the big four come up, drive up to you. Big four was a unit with four cops in a Dodge unmarked car. The shotgun was standing up between the four cops and they would come up and they could frisk you and they would, and they bugged us. We had our long, our hair was like to our shoulders. We were 16 or 17 and they stopped us, frisked us. We're just punk kids with a band to play guitars. We didn't know how to find pot yet. We didn't know what that, you know, we didn't know. <laughs> didn't have anything to be busted for. We were huh? afraid of that still. <laughs> we were still afraid of it. Yeah. Back then it wasn't around like, yeah, you had to go to a college or you had to go to a probably, I don't know where. So that's as close as we got to any kind of cops, police bugging us. Yeah, Detroit, so Detroit had a lot of this stuff going on because in 62, I think it was, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King came to Detroit and they marched down Woodward and it was like 100,000 people and it was mostly black folks. I mean, 99% probably. And it freaked out everybody on the east side of Detroit, everywhere in Detroit. I just recall just the attitude, whoa, people started moving out of Detroit. That's when it really started. And then it really snowballed after the riot, moving out of Detroit. But that was one of the impetus, like, you know, I was in a neighborhood, working class neighborhood, and maybe like five blocks over was a, where a black neighborhood uh, where we all played baseball. We all ran into each other and it was all like very warm and welcoming people from all cultures in, in our neighborhood. 
and different religions, different religions, Muslims, everything, everything, all, all kinds of. Anyway, so by 67, there was a lot of heat going on. As everyone knows, I don't have to talk about that. It was, families were celebrating soldiers coming home from Vietnam. And it was called the Blind Pig. They called it the Blind Pig in Detroit. They were having their fun and everything. And it was four in the morning and cops came in and one thing, you know, led to another. And I think 44 patrons or people were shot and killed. In the end of it all, next day, that's when the, the, the riot happened. But previously, that a week before, at a motel about a mile away, there were some teens. They were at a, a, a motel, white girls, black guys hanging out. They didn't like that. Cops came in, and there were some shootings there as well. It, it's it's just a, a continual thing that happened from then that's still happening today. So it's hard for a story like that not to affect you as a songwriter. So this has been hanging in your memory. Yeah. I was outraged at the time because I was learning. I was getting political back around that time, 67, you know, MC5 and the war in Vietnam and ban the bomb and everything. And peace. More, everyone is for peace, uh, you know, and marching. And we were all missing school. We would go down to the university in downtown Detroit, Wayne State. So anyway, it was something, that whole thing is part of me still now. I am still have that rolling around in my head. And then the Beatles or John Lennon. John Lennon was part of my growing up politically. And uh, Angela Davis, that whole kind of thing. And so I'm right in, I'm right in there. But um now I'm more about, I do my music and that's what I'm about. Uh, I didn't, I didn't go into the political side. But this song is a political song. So you're in it now and you're writing about this memory. Cause I grew up, you had the Bush administration and you had Reagan in there and this whole thing all the way up. And I'm frustrated and thinking there was a silent majority. There was a silence. People weren't doing anything, walking in the, protesting anything in the nineties and the two thousands. It was no, Awareness of anything. And I'm thinking, this stuff going on. And I'm thinking, I got to pay tribute to the riots in Detroit. I had the title, 67 Riot. So over time, I just built that whole thing. I had the groove for the guitar. I think I came up with the idea in the, in the 90s and it, it seeped over into 2006. And that's when I started writing lyrics and finished it up around 2010. And then I recorded it in my other little studio with friends. And, um, I look back at it now and I'm thinking, wow, those lyrics are good. I couldn't, I don't know. The lyrics laid out really well. The second part, the bridge part came out of nowhere. The guitar part that builds and builds and builds that came out of nowhere. Then I just laid down a, um, a Stratocaster through an echo delay and the groove. I was singing Parliament Funkadelic on the one. Then you go up to down, bottom, 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 back to the bottom, bottom. That whole part just came out of nowhere. I, and I, you know, sometimes it just happens. So, but uh, I always wanted to write something for that title, and it came out the way I wanted it to. So, what made you invite your friend Wayne Kramer from MC5? Chuck Ocasio and Pearl Sound in Detroit. I gave him all these tracks that I had done five, six, seven, eight years ago. I met Chuck and uh, he said, send me some music. Send me, and I sent tapes to him and they were already mixed and he just remixed them. And he goes, he liked Glenn Kramer. And I go, yeah, I'd like to ask him in, but he goes, call him, just call him. And I go, nah, I don't think, I, I don't know, man. I don't, he wouldn't want to do that. 
you know, and it's one of those things. You just, he's one of your idols. He's one of the guys I listened to when I was 17 years old playing guitar. And uh, him and, and Fred Smith, Ron Ashton, and all these guys. It took me a while. It took me a few weeks. And I got, I called him from here in Portland. I was recording with uh, Chuck in Detroit. He said, send me the track over and I'll check it out. And uh, sounds cool. I go, Wayne, just do whatever, you, do what you do on guitar. And I gave it to him and sent it. He laid down this great track, sent it back. I didn't do anything to it. I didn't even turn it down. <laughs> he just, you didn't do anything to it. I didn't, I didn't want to touch it. I just, you know, I was going to go, oh, we don't, we don't want that part. Uh, maybe I'll take out that part. I didn't do that. I just said, Chuck, we just got to go with it and leave it the way it is. And we just turned it up and left it. Nice. Nice. So I would love to hear Wayne, you, and Tom Morello do this at the kick out the jams concert that they do, or one of Wayne's activist concerts that he does with Tom Morello. I think if you took Tom Morello and the two of you, Oh my God, it would just, that would be fun. That would be insane. Like I jumped on stage. With the I jumped on stage with Wayne in, in Portland here. Uh, he, he MC 50 played and uh, I jumped on for sister Ann. I think it was about Angela Davis. The crowd, yeah, yeah, the crowd went for it and it was good. Oh, awesome. I would have loved to have been there. Hey, Mike Skill, I don't know how to wrap this up. I've been so thrilled to get to know you and get to know your music. It's such an honor to have you on the show. Is there anything you want to promote or plug or say to our audience? I guess uh, this is the thing that's coming from my heart. The stuff that I'm doing now is with romantics, everybody used to sing. Uh, it got barreled down to two guys singing and then my voice is back out. So these are songs I came up with, lyrics. And the first thing I did was Dark Side of Your Love, which is really another good song. It's a minor key song. You can look that up. Dark Side of Your Love, Carrie Got Married, Not My Business, My Bad Pretty is a good one, another good one. Really sold songs last year. They're all out on Spotify. We can get them on Spotify. And MikeSkill.com. And uh, I've got a new one coming up. Uh, we just did Got Your Rock and Roll, which is a song, like I said, Detroit in the 70s was a vacuum. There was like nothing there. No clubs. No one was going down there. Bands would come to town and go out of town. No one would go downtown. Just the artists and uh, musicians were down there. So I was writing about this vacuum and all we had was the music, the rock and roll. We Got Your Rock and Roll comes from that time. That's all I had. So that's We Got Your Rock and Roll. And a new one's coming out next month. Soul Soul Alone, a little bit of a Steve Cropper. Uh, Steve Cropper meets uh, Velvet Underground, I'd say. So with saxophone, with horns on it. That's a cool one that's coming up. So are we going to see a Mike Skill Tour? When we can. I've done a couple of benefits. I've done some benefits for Sylvain Sylvain. And then I did the Detroit Music Awards. But I haven't played out for myself, really, you know, made money or toured or anything like that. I know. That. Well, we've had COVID. So hopefully we're coming out of that and, you know... Is it possible the Romantics will be back out there on tour again in the future sometimes? When we can pull it off with uh, safely and, uh, you know, without getting sick and all that. I've done both uh, vaccinations, so my family and I are on our way to that. We just want to do what we're supposed to do and, and not get sick and uh, hopefully everything comes out all right for the country and everybody. Well, I got to thank you. I got to thank uh, our listeners. I got to thank 
my DJ Wyatt Schmidt in the sound booth for making everything sound great. Thank you, Wyatt. We're so grateful to have you on the team. And you can listen to DJ Wyatt Schmidt on his uh, EDM recordings on Twitch. I encourage everybody to follow him. MC Owens and Lauren in our uh, social media group. Thank you for all your help. Thank you to all our followers on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're very active there posting these type of recordings and things, highlights from these shows out there for you to follow. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you, Mike Skill.